So, Mark. Yes? One of the best things about this movie is that the home, the the manor at which it is set, uh, Allerdale Hall, is built on a mountain of red clay. Liquid clay, though. I didn't know clay came in such a soupy consistency. Which the movie does prime you for, right? When Hiddleston is in Buffalo, he's like, yes, we've got all this clay. And then it's liquid form. It's super handy. And he pulls out, like, a bottle of just, like, red goo. But what this means is that, like, one, the house... I love a bleeding house, right? Like, the bloody light bulb in Evil Dead. And I love the way, just in the background of shots, this house is, like, oozing, like, red goo through the bricks. But also... Like, that red is showing up all over the place, most notably, like, the red soaks through the snow, so that they have this, like, red-stained snow. It's super cool. It's where the house gets its name, Crimson Peak, and that's the name of the movie. But anyway, in that spirit of the the deep and wonderful reds of this movie, what's your favorite, like, instance of a really striking color in a movie? Well, I mean, shout out to some recent films that we've covered. I think color was a big part of our conversations in both Dick Tracy and Rye Lane. Oh, sure. Well, of course, Dick Tracy has the yellow raincoat. Yes, and also seven colors. Rye Lane, in the whole movie. In the whole movie. Rye Lane, more colors than that, but also just really striking use of color. Blues and pinks, especially. Blues, pinks. Even the like real scenes have a good use of color. And then when you get to the more abstract ones, it's just, you know, a really good way of heightening and differentiating from the world. Yeah. Maura, have you seen Rye Lane? Is that on your radar? No, I have not. It's on Hulu. It's a British rom-com. It's a good time. It's only on my radar because I listened to your episode about it. <laughs> okay, well, Fair enough. Uh, that's our public service <laughs> and you should check it out. It's like 83 minutes. Oh, that's nice. Also, I like how you're assuming she didn't listen to the episode <laughs> I <know>. already. <laughs> I don't assume anyone listens to our episodes. I don't. <laughs> I notoriously do not either. <laughs> Yeah, I at least edit the thing, right? By the time it comes out, I've spent hours with it. Yeah, I uh, still hate the sound of my voice in recordings over five years into this podcast. It's been a long time. It's We're like hitting six. I know. You know what? Maybe I'll bring this up with my therapist this week. <laughs> there you go. Has your therapist listened to the podcast? I uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an interesting session. Would you have to pay... Like, for a session, if she were to listen to an hour of the podcast? That's a, f- not a great she opts question. In. Not if she just, like, needs to know your thoughts on Splash. <laughs> well, one of my thoughts on Splash is I fell asleep for ten minutes of the <laughs> movie Splash. <laughs> so, Mark, I don't know if you know this, but in my whole, like, Blu-ray setup at home, I have, like, different shelves that are organized in different ways. And one of them is for directors for whom I have at least three movies. They go on a shelf that's organized alphabetically by director. So I know where, like, all the Spielbergs are, all the, like, Guillermo del Toro's. Like, frankly, movies that I might seek out in that way, right? As opposed to a weird one-off. But my wife loves Apollo 13. So I recently bought Apollo 13 on Blu-ray. Which means that I had to promote Ron Howard, because I now have three Ron Howards. So Splash has now moved up to that shelf. Boo. I actually I didn't dislike watch. Splash. No. It was more the result of being tired. It was not a commentary on Splash. We should do it as a movie night movie, just so we both watch it. Uh, back to color. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say, talking about like this kind of color stuff, 
Watching Crimson Peak, I was very much thinking about The Last Jedi, which I rewatched this summer, mm-hmm. which also has a lot of really great use of red. You know what other movie has a lot of great use of red, specifically? Mortal Engines, produced by Peter Jackson. I mean, it, it sure does. But, like, The Last Jedi in particular has the, like, red and white juxtaposition, right? Where they land on crate and it looks like a snow planet. And it looks like they're doing Hoth again. But it's not snow, it's salt that's, like, covering up this red rock. And so as the battle goes on, the salt gets kicked up and just reveals the red. So effectively, like, the landscape becomes bloodied in a kind of a similar way to what happens in Crimson Peak. Oh, it also has Snoke's room. Right, which is also just like red. red. It's like the wall from Do the Right Thing. Just a bunch of stuff happening in front of a red wall. Just red. I feel like I am always particularly grabbed by really bright reds in a movie because it's not a color that you see that often. I think evolutionary biologists have discussed this before. Tapping into a pretty fundamental human experience here. Yeah, but it's great. It is great. There's a reason filmmakers use red. It feels like this is an opportunity to drop in the red versus green speech from The Green Knight, but I'm not the kind of weirdo who would have that memorized. It does not dally, nor does it wait to plot a conspire, pull it out by the roots one day, and the next there it is, creeping in around the edges. Whilst we're off looking for red, here comes green. Red. It's the color of lust, but green is what lust leaves behind. In heart. In womb. Green is what is left when our fades, when passion dies, when we die too. When you go, your footprints will fill with grass. Moss shall cover your tombstone, and as the sun rises, green shall spread over all. In all its shades and hues. Do you do you have it memorized? No, of course not. Okay. I also thought that was a weird way of you trying to admit that you do have it memorized. I do not have it memorized. I have a Green Knight Blu-ray sitting next to me, but that's because I haven't watched it yet. You haven't I saw seen it, it yet? Oh, okay. I saw it in theaters. I saw it with you. Yeah. I can't remember exactly I who I watched I left because I had movies. to take a big poop. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that in part. In the middle of the movie? Yeah, but I saw it again. <laughs> uh, what about you, Maura? What, uh, what is your iconic use of color in a movie? Thinking of colors in movies just automatically makes me think of The Wizard of Oz. Both like this, the shift between black and white and color and also when you get to the Emerald City and everything, everyone's clothing, like the walls, everything. The color changing horse. Oh my gosh, yes, that too. I forgot about that. I mean, the color in Wizard of Oz is so striking that people have like Mandela affected themselves into thinking it's the first color movie. Oh, well, because that would be such a cool reveal if it was. Like, you're watching this movie and it's everything you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, ah! (laughs) Right. The wildest thing about color in that movie is, in order to do, there's like one shot where Dorothy, in black and white, opens the door, and through the doorframe you see the color of Oz. And like, they didn't have technology to do, like, recolor that digitally or something. So what they did is, it's a color shot. Everything in the foreground, the house... The back of Dorothy is all painted the color that it would appear on black and white film. And it's being shot in color. That's crazy. So sick. Just awesome. 
in season five of RuPaul's Drag Race, during the finale, one of the queens comes out painted and dressed like she's in a black and white film. Like, all of her skin is painted grayscale and, like, noir dress. It's such a, it was like a jaw-dropping moment. That's you amazing. know what? Actually, that reminds me of and is another example of cool color use, but this isn't a TV show, is in the other two. That episode. <laughs> the Pleasantville where, episode. Yeah, where like any, it's all oh black and white, <laughs> but anybody who like makes an active acting choice like turns to color and they like have to paint that woman gray so that she'll blend in. Well, that's just a direct reference to Pleasantville. You know what? It works great in both it's cases. It's so perfect. <laughs> I. It made me kind of want to watch Pleasantville for the first time ever. Oh, it's a pretty good movie. I had another one about color. Oh, I mean, it's very obvious and cliche at this point, especially with the TikTok trends. But I think it is worth like mentioning that Wes Anderson's use of color is always on point. Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. E- even in his less interesting movies, the use of color is always very strong. Yeah, that's true. Mark, you have not seen Asteroid City yet, right? I have seen Asteroid City. Okay. And that's what made me think specifically about it, because I was going to talk about him using black and white and color in the same movie. Uh, just unbelievable. The color in that movie is really good at just verging on unnatural. Like, most of the movies, his color is sort of interiors and very, you know, designed and artificial. But because most of that movie takes place outside, it is still looking artificial, but also more naturalistic. That's a movie that's in my big Blu-ray order coming from Best Buy, and I cannot wait to watch it again. I haven't seen it yet. It's incredible. I mean, I Mark, you are a much bigger Wes Anderson fan than I am. Mm-hmm. I think that movie's incredible. I think it. I think it's his best movie. I oh, wow. don't think it's his best movie, personally, because I think it, honestly, it's like, it leans... A little, it becomes a little too Wes Anderson at times, coming from a big Wes Anderson fan. (laughs) See, that's where I think it transcends all of the things that I've found annoying about him in the past, just by so fully being itself. Which I, I respect the choice, and I think it's well done. I just, at times, there were moments where I was like, okay, a lot of it, I think those moments were some pacing issues, but like, the things about that movie that shine are so good, mostly the little girls. And let's, what made me think of it in terms of color, let's not forget Jeff Goldblum as the alien. Ugh, that's really good. A movie that reminded me that Scarlett Johansson is a good actor. Yeah. Frequently. (laughs) It's been so long since I've seen her in anything, because she's mostly doing Marvel movies and I I don't watch those. you did not see Black Widow. I don't watch Marvel movies anymore, pretty much, unless it's an animated Spider-Man movie. Talk about a great movie. I still, I mean... I think it's hard for me because I have such an emotional attachment to Royal Tenenbaums. So it's hard for me to watch other Wes Anderson movies and be like, this is better. But at the same time, Grand Budapest Hotel Prize, the second best use of color because the hotel I is do pretty love that in one. pink. I gotta watch that one again. That's been a long time. I think, who does it? Uh, Nick's parents have like the concept art book of that movie. I need oh, to look cool. through it. I know Matt Zoller Sites puts out those, like, big coffee table books for, like, every Wes Anderson movie. I assume it's by him, then. Yeah. What a gig. Yeah. Incredible. 
All right, we are a little far afield, though, and I want to make sure we get to talk about a movie that starts with great color because it starts with a deep red Universal Pictures logo. Oh, it's so good. It's like, instead of the dark universe, it's the red universe. We we love a logo change. We've made it clear. So let's dive in. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Bark and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance make any sense whatsoever? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, to talk about Guillermo del Toro's, and not a ghost story, it's a story with a ghost, Crimson Peak, we are joined by our, our medical expert, who could perhaps tell us something about ghosts. My sister, Mora. Hello. They did not teach us about ghosts in nursing school. I was going to say, question number one, ghosts, <laughs> are they real, yes or no? As a medical expert. I don't know. I don't have a strong answer on that one. <laughs> Do you believe in ghosts, Mora? Mm, not really. Do you believe in ghosts that used to be rum runners and return for 12 days leading up to Christmas every year? <laughs> um, Very much so. Those are the scariest kind. I was going to say, you are now in their neck of the woods. That's a New England movie. Oh, you're right. Be, well, hopefully be careful out there. <laughs> I really need to be. How, goodness knows, a handsome ghost might come for you. <laughs> Me, one of two known people to be afraid of that movie. They've both been on this show. You know what movie doesn't have handsome ghosts? Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. <laughs> Yeah, so Mark, this was your idea for us to do, and your idea to have Mora on. So I think you should talk a little bit about why you wanted us to do Crimson Peak, uh, and why you felt we needed a medical professional to help us talk about it. I don't remember exactly when I watched it. It was recently. I think it may have been when I had COVID and was watching movies. I watched Crimson Peak, and as we'll discuss, the romantic plotline is one that I felt fits in nicely on this podcast, especially as we are in the Halloween season. Spooky time. And then I also thought, this movie's really weird and has creepy ghosts, and I think Mora would either love it or will be very mad we made her watch it, and so we should have her on as a guest. Not as much about medicine, more about uh, the established uh, hostile relationship that we have with Mora Redmond. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, I, I do I do have to say, I think I was expecting to be madder about <laughs> having to watch this movie than I was. I'm glad to hear that. You texted me a, pic, a screenshot of your phone because you had Googled the movie, <laughs> and there were three adjectives associated, and I want to find all three of them. It was a screenshot of a review that someone had posted. Oh, well, no, this was, uh, you had clearly Googled Crimson Peak, and then yeah. it had, like, where to watch, it had the Rotten Tomatoes score, and it said, in a nutshell suspenseful mysterious and terrifying and you had just highlighted in the screenshot in a nutshell terrifying and just sent that to me with four exclamation points i would not describe this movie as terrifying no okay but so i I kept consisting over and over again i was like it's not scary it's spooky it's not a ghost story it's a story with a ghost I just feel like people are always trying to convince me to watch scary movies and be like, oh, no, no, it's just psychologically scary. And I'm like, I don't think that's better. Like, people are always trying to come up with these weird qualifiers that are supposed to make horror films better. And I'm like, I I don't know if spooky is better. It wasn't 
it wasn't as bad. I, it was not as scary as I was expecting it to be. But I was also thinking about the fact that Rachel kept saying that all the ghosts were nice and friendly. And I'm like, these ghosts were terrifying, though. But they're still friendly. The ones who just, like, shriek while they crawl out of the floor. Like, they didn't look like Haunted Mansion friendly ghosts. But they had friendly intentions. Yeah, they have good intentions. Yes, but a lot of them were just like, ah, coming right at you. That doesn't seem friendly to me. Some of the running from ghost sequences almost felt like like ready or not. Just like this big creepy house. Friendly is not the word I would use to describe them. Um, no. This movie raises a very interesting question very early on, which is your mom dies. You get the chance to see her again briefly. But she looks like that. Is it a positive experience for you? Like, sure, the ghost of her mom is trying to warn her. But, like, it's not a pleasant viewing. You know what I mean? Like, that in and of itself is terrifying. Like, the way that the ghost of the mother is portrayed. So you say, in a nutshell, terrifying. (laughs) I don't know. Not quite. Like I said, it wasn't as scary as I was expecting it to be. It was like a manageable level, but it was way more gory than I was expecting. It is much bloodier than I remember. Me too. I watched it recently and I forgot about how necessarily how much stabbing there was. So much. Like a lot of stabbing because I mostly remember the shovel, which is not as graphic. I remember the knife going into the cheek and causing the eyeball to turn red. Cool. That one's cool. That was horrifying. I love as the movie just gets redder and redder, especially like at the end when Jessica Chastain is like chasing her through the house and she's wearing that white nightgown that's just splattered with blood and it's billowing behind her as she like flies down these halls. More, I do want to say one reason I thought you would be good for the episode is there's also a chance that you would like this movie. Like it's not one where I did it just because I thought you would be scared and hate it. Yeah, and like I said, I I liked it more than I was expecting. I was expecting to just like totally hate it and be mad at you too, but I actually did kind of enjoy (laughs) it and also was like a little freaked out. Would you visit Crimson Peak again? Um, I don't know. I feel like it's maybe one of those things where I don't know if I would go out of my way to watch it again, but if I was with people who wanted to watch it, like, I wouldn't, like, I would be fine with it. You know what I mean? Sure. I first saw this movie in October of 2020. This was a a record exchange Blu-ray for me, just something I bought cheap at the used record store in Silver Spring. And in October of 2020, with nothing else to do, my now wife and I were like, let's just watch a bunch of spooky movies. And so this is one of the ones that we pulled out of the crate of unwatched movies and threw on. And we loved it. So we have been meaning to rewatch this for ages. And... Every once in a while, my wife would be like, you should do that on the podcast. So when Mark suggested it, I was like, oh, of course. And I had a delight rewatching this. Maura, we watched it together. So you saw me like pumping my fists like every 20 minutes. It's a great kickoff to the Halloween season. Yeah, I declared it the kickoff my spooky season. We're recording this in September, but following this, I've also watched Little Shop of Horrors and Doctor Sleep. I'm just into it. This movie is so perfectly Guillermo del Toro. And that always works for me. He's so great. And also, I just, like, love him as a person. I follow him on Twitter, and he's mostly just, like, tweeting about, like, himself, like, painting his little fantasy miniatures. And I'm like, what a great little man. He seems 
is so normal and then just makes the like spookiest looking things you'll ever see. But they're always sweet. Uh, not always. They're spooky, but sweet. They're often sweet. I would not describe the pale man from Pan's Labyrinth as sweet. No, but the fawn in its own weird way kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the weird surprise of that movie is as creepy as it comes off. Like, it's totally above board. Yeah, that is true. But also, I feel like the pale man is creepier than the fawn. Yeah, but the pale man's in like three minutes of that movie. And they are the scariest three minutes of the movie. Except for the whole, you know, like, real-world part, which is right, scary. The fascism? <laughs> which is scarier than the fantasy elements. Is is Pan's Labyrinth your favorite Del Toro? I feel like it has to be. I think it is. Pinocchio is also a strong contender now. Sure. Cried more at Pinocchio than I did at Pan's Labyrinth, probably. It's not really a tearjerker, just a emotionally disturbing film. You also felt very strongly... Uh, sort of horrified about the idea that Il Duje has stinky poops. Um, I love a movie that can laugh at a dictator and belittle and turn them into a joke to show how absurd it is. Like, the glorifying of them is in a way that actually works. Yeah. Great. Del Toro rocks. I am excited for whatever he's got coming down the pike, he's been talking a lot about how, like, he just wants to keep making animated movies. And I don't think he's going to be exclusively doing that, but, like, I think his hope is to get something like what Henry Selleck was trying to do in the 90s of just, like, can I keep a team of stop-motion animators continuously employed by, like, having something going and I can shoot something in live action while they're working? That would be great. I want him to keep doing live action because I think his live action horror designs are too good to lose. Maura, have you seen Pan's Labyrinth? I don't know if we asked. No. Okay. I have not. You should watch it. I think the only one of his movies I've seen might be The Shape of Water. Not Pinocchio? No. Okay, that one you actually, like, you actually should watch. Pan's Labyrinth is an uh, emotionally disturbing tale about the trials of a young girl in the rising fascism of Franco Spain. Oh, okay. But it's got, like, a weird dark fairy tale element to it. It's really cool. Okay. Maybe I'll consider it. I watched it when I had a weirdly long break during parent-teacher conference day last fall. (laughs) Um, Okay, it looks like his next movie is live-action Frankenstein, which rocks. Oscar Isaac, Andrew Garfield, and Mia Goth are attached to it. You know he's actually going to be the person that addresses the humanity of Frankenstein's monster in a meaningful way for the first time in film. I mean, his best director's speech is just, I love monsters. The true monster of Frankenstein is Dr. Frankenstein. Since childhood, I've been faithful to monsters. I have been saved and absolved by them because monsters, I believe, are patron saints of our blissful imperfection. And they allow and embody the possibility of failing and live. Yeah, but okay, here's the quote from the Annecy Festival this year. There are a couple more live-action movies I want to do, but not many. After that, I only want to do animation. That's the plan. Hmm. And, you know, who knows what that couple are. Obviously, one of them is Frankenstein. For years, he has been trying to make At the Mountains of Madness. And I would love to see him go full Lovecraft. I just think, also, that I never believe directors when they say they're going to stop doing something. 
considering yeah. Miyazaki is retired, I think, what, 10 times now? And did you see at Toronto, his producer was like, Miyazaki keeps showing up with more ideas. <laughs> he keeps coming into the office. <laughs> Just stop Just stop lying to us. Well, I think it, the problem is it's to himself, right? He's announcing to himself, this is my last movie. And then he gets into it and he's like, you know, I, I got some more ideas. <laughs> Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak. Okay, so Crimson Peak is directed by, of course, Academy Award winner Guillermo del Toro. And uh, it was written by del Toro and Matthew Robbins. Matthew Robbins has like a long career going back to the 70s. He wrote The Sugarland Express, which is the first theatrical Spielberg movie, which rocks. We could do that on the podcast. But Del Toro and Matthew Robbins wrote it in 2006 after Pan's Labyrinth came out and sold it to Universal with Del Toro attached to direct. So, like, this could have been made in, like, 2008. But it kept getting delayed, first so he could make Hellboy 2, then so that he could make The Hobbit, because he spent years developing The Hobbit. And it's not until after he leaves The Hobbit he makes Pacific Rim. While he's on Pacific Rim, that's produced by Legendary. And they were like, hey, uh, Guillermo... What else do you want to make? And he sent them three scripts or treatments. One was for Crimson Peak. One was At the Mountains of Madness. And one, I think I would love to see, is a Western adaptation of The Count of Monte Cristo. A Western? Oh my god. Yeah, like a cowboy movie. Yeah, I understand. I'm just surprised. It is the thing of like, Del Toro is not a guy I think of for like a movie about wide open spaces. Yeah. But Western Count of Monte Cristo sounds great to me. So I'm in. But also, The Count of Monte Cristo isn't really set for wide open spaces, based on my understanding from watching some sort of animated children's adaptation. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what that is, but I'm curious. All I know is it's a revenge story. Yeah. But so, at that point, Legendary's like, oh, Crimson Peak sounds good. So this is a, a Legendary Universal deal. They shot it in Canada in the spring of 2014. It doesn't come out till the fall of 2015 because Universal really wanted it as a Halloween release and it like wasn't done for Halloween 2014. One thing I think is kind of interesting is that this movie was originally cast instead of Tom Hiddleston and Mia Wasikowska, it was Benedict Cumberbatch and Emma Stone. Whoa. I think Mia Wasikowska is so good in this movie. Yeah, I think she's better for this movie than Emma Stone would be. And I say that as somebody who's very excited to see Emma Stone as Horny Frankenstein this fall. I really think Emma Stone is a very good actress. I think she's not, like, wayfish with a spine of iron that this movie requires. Correct. Because Mia Wasikowska can pull off the, like, looking like a pale Victorian ghost woman while actually, you know, like, solving the <laughs> solving the mystery without any help and rescuing the fumbling, bumbling man who is not memorable. This part was sold to Charlie Hunnam as you play the damsel in distress. Excellent. <laughs> Mark, you have not seen Bergman Island, right? That's not a movie on your radar? No. That's, like, the last time I saw Mia Wasikowska. It was, like, 2021? The Mia Hansen Love movie. Vicky Creeps plays a filmmaker. And Mia Wasikowska plays the Vicky Creeps stand-in in the film within a film. And is unbelievable in it. I mean, I think my biggest exposure to her is the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland movies. Which is like a cursed object. So, I really should, especially after liking this movie so much, I really should explore the Wasikowska filmography more. I would say Bergman Island, and then if you want something closer to this vibe... Stoker is a wild time. Is it worth watching? Oh, yeah. 
It's Park Chan-wook's only English language movie. And it has a similar kind of, like, weird, like, high-intensity, not high-intensity, like, high-emotional intensity vibe to this. But whereas this is, like, high, big manners, 19th century gothic, Stoker is, like, mid-20th century southern gothic. Hmm. I will add it to the list. It's a good time. I think this movie is also just well cast in general because Tom Hiddleston and Charlie Hunnam both play the perfect amount of forgettableness to like different levels. I think that Tom Hiddleston, like that character can't be too strong or overwhelming on screen, but still has to be charming while lacking any sense of self, which he pulls off. It is crazy how Tom Hiddleston has like disappeared. Where did he go? Oh, the Loki TV show. Yeah, I mean, it's funny where, like, watching this movie, I was thinking, like, oh, Hiddleston, like, what happened to him, like, and I actually thought of Cumberbatch, so it's funny that Cumberbatch originally had the part, but, like, Cumberbatch is not as big as it felt like he could have become in, like, 2012, but he, like, is very successful, he has an Oscar nomination, like, he's doing fine. Whereas, like, Tom Hiddleston seemed like he was on this moment of, like, on the cusp of exploding, especially after the Avengers. And by the time you hit Crimson Peak three years later, so it's 2015, he's in Crimson Peak, he does the Hank Williams biopic, like Tom Hiddleston, who we all want to see as country music legend Hank Williams in a drama. I did not know that existed. And then since then, it's Kong Skull Island, Thor Ragnarok, Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame, Ant-Man and the Wasp in a post credit scene. That's his film career. But he can be so good. Yeah. I'd like, he's been, to be fair to Tom Hiddleston, he's been on stage a bunch since then. Like, 2017, he played Hamlet. Oh. So I'll give him that. I actually, I, I saw that. him in, I don't remember which one, but I saw him when he was in the Pinter production. I think on the West End or Broadway. Yeah, he was in Betrayal. Betrayal. Like. He was very good in it. I think all of his, like, acting happens on stage now. And then he does Marvel movies to fund his lifestyle. And look, like, Loki is a pretty fun TV show. I'll grant him that. But it does feel like on the film level, like, the Hiddleston of War Horse, or even the Hiddleston of the Avengers, like, we haven't seen in a long time. I respect it if he's, like, laying it all out on the theater. And that's where his true passion lies. Because I think I just I just want him right because I'm I know. not on the West End. Right, it's like I want to see him act well, but I really respect honestly a career where you just make Marvel movies for movies because you get so much money, and then use that to take roles in plays where you won't get paid as much. Yeah, and like you do the TV show for a couple months a year, you get to hang out with Owen Wilson. Like it's not a bad gig, right? <laughs> but he is very good in this, and then of course. Shout out to a woman whose famously red hair is not red in a movie called Crimson Peak. Oh my gosh! Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain, who I read an IMDb fact, so take this with a heavy grain of salt. <laughs> Laura, I don't know if you know, IMDb trivia is user submitted. Oh my gosh. And unlike Wikipedia, there's nowhere to attach a citation. Okay. But I read an IMDb fact saying they originally approached her for the part of Edith, and she read the script and said, no thank you, I will play Lucille. Wow. I fully believe it, though. I want it to be true in my heart. I mean, she's a weirdo with, like, give-it-to-me theater kid energy in a good way. She's so good. I love her. Even when I don't love her, I love her. Like, I saw the 355. 
she just has such screen presence. And in this movie, it's used so well. And she's what a star. so weird from the beginning. Like, I love that she doesn't if she doesn't have a turn, because while Jessica Chastain can pull that off, I also really enjoy just seeing her be cold, frigid, creepy, incestuous, murderous, dead ghost. <laughs> All the steps. That is the step. It's what your English teacher tells teaches you like your sophomore year. The, the hero's journey. And you don't get to see Jessica Chastain like this very often. No, I mean, perversely, it feels like the closest performance is like the eyes of Tammy Faye. Where she is just, like, all out, like, I am doing a character dialed up to 14. But she doesn't, you know, try and commit murder or get murdered in that. No, just fraud. So, you know, she really gets a chance to shine in this one. Also, I don't think I've heard her do any accent work before. You know what? I mean, she probably does a southern accent at some point, right? I haven't seen The Help. Yeah, she does a southern accent in The Help. Fair. But her British accent's good. I don't, like, it's, I don't, it, I mean. It's not conspicuous. It's not conspicuous in any way, so I never thought about it, so that's the sign of good accent work. Maura, how did you feel about Jessica Chastain's performance? Or in general, what are, what are your Chastain musings? Um, I didn't recognize her until Will said she's the person in Molly's game, which I love that movie. Great movie. She's just terrifying in this one. Just, like, really has a temper, you know? Yeah, you could say that. (laughs) Mark, have you seen Molly's Game? I have not. I love this just like reading list episode that we're doing. I think of her largely interstellarly. I mean, she's unbelievable in that. That's my Jessica Chastain, I think. Yeah, Um, it's probably that and Molly's Game. And then she's also in The Martian, like at the same time as this. She had a big run in this period. Yeah. Because she also is shooting this movie and A Most Violent Year at the same time. They're like shooting in Toronto and New York, and she would go back and forth when she was needed on one set or the other. That's... Which is crazy. That's nuts. Like, why would you do that? You have to remember so many lines at the same time. And also the accent switching that on and off. Yeah. Talking about The Martian, like, this movie came out in the fall of 2015, and I feel like... I probably didn't see it, one, because then I was just, like, full scaredy cat and was not seeing anything spooky. But also, like, that was the semester that I started teaching, and I wasn't going to the movies a bunch. And so, like, I basically only saw stuff that I was, like, pretty sure was good. And I feel like the reviews on this were kind of middling. They were all like, the thing looks great, but the story is kind of so-so. And it just, like, really underperformed at the box office. So I think I was kind of like, eh, it's a dud, never mind. You only seeing stuff that you're pretty sure is great is so different from your MO now. <laughs> well, sure. Sometimes I get off work at three o'clock and I see what is playing. And that's how I saw Retribution starring Liam Neeson. And I'm only 90% sure that's what that movie was called. Oh my gosh. I mean, also back then I wasn't like going multiple times, right? Like I saw Dead Reckoning for a third time two weeks ago. You know what? Still good. Yeah, I guess the movie pass and AMC, all those like different movie theater passes probably made a big difference. Right. Yeah, I would not have seen Dead Reckoning three times if I paid for every ticket. Yeah. But part of the thing with Crimson Peak is I do think it just kind of opened at a time where there wasn't really room for it. So like when it opens in the you know beginning of October of 2015, it opens the same weekend 
as Goosebumps and Bridge of Spies. So your drama people are busy seeing the new Spielberg. Yeah. Some of your spooky people are going to see Goosebumps. And it's week two of The Martian. Or maybe week three of The Martian. She's competing against herself. Right. Jessica Chastain's competing against herself. And The Martian was this, like, box office juggernaut for two and a half months. Whoever wins, Jessica Chastain wins. Right. Also in the box office at this point, Hotel Transylvania 2, Nancy Myers, The Intern, Pan, the Joe Wright, Peter Pan movie, Sicario, and Steve Jobs. So it's just like, it's a crowded box office of good stuff, and it feels like Crimson Peak, by not having incredible reviews, just kind of got lost. I feel like it's done well since then, though. Yes, I think its reputation has grown, in part because just it's a great movie to look at. It's the color stuff we talked about. It's the production design. That Saturn award-winning production design. I also think that the movie is better than the reviews we're giving it credit for. Yeah, I think that's true. I feel like I love this movie. I do think, like, in the last 25 minutes, it becomes a little obvious. But it's still a good time. It's not a perfect movie, and it could be better. But it's like... I don't. I wouldn't describe it as like a mediocre movie. No, not at all. Because I have such a good time watching it. Also, I just found out and want to shout out Jessica Chastain being married to a. Uh, granted, it means nothing because nobility is idiotic. But I think it's very funny that Jessica Chastain is married to an Italian nobleman <laughs> who is from a family that was founded in the 10th century. Oh my god! I did not know this. And her husband is the current count. Like. I think the head of the family. Is he the Count of Monte Cristo? <laughs> Unfortunately, no, but it looks like he owns a palace. Oh, all right. So that's fun. Wow. Yeah. Good for her. She does not have parents with Wikipedia pages. Um, We should probably talk about the, the romance of Crimson Peak, right? That's a lot of what the yeah. movie is about. And boy, is it a romance for the ages. <laughs> It's great. It's gothic, right? The whole thing is just like the fall of the House of Usher. That's what I kept thinking about watching it, right? The creepy old house, the weird siblings who live there. I also thought a lot about uh, Burnt Offerings. Yeah. Where, like Burnt Offerings, there is this, like, weird old house. There are these weird siblings who live there. The house basically, like, consumes people. Effectively, like, eats them to keep going. The way that they keep, like, bringing in new wives who they kill to try to keep the house going. I wonder if that is a deliberate reference, right? Allerdale Hall, Mrs. Allardyce, and Burnt Offerings. There's something there. There might, it might be a, it might be a reference, but I do think that one thing I kind of like about this is while it's a movie about Allerdale Hall, it is much more about the people. Oh, yeah. And, like, it's not the house that's causing their obsession. It's their obsession with the house that's causing their downfall. Yeah, there's a Rebecca quality to it, too. It feels very Rebecca, if Rebecca was alive and um, the guy's sister. (laughs) Yes. If Rebecca were Crimson Peak, then it would be Crimson Peak. (laughs) Very strong Rebecca vibes, if also Rebecca was in color. Well, you could always watch the Ben Wheatley remake on Netflix. Oh, God. Maura, have you seen Rebecca? No, I haven't, actually. You gotta watch Rebecca. That thing rips. But apparently not the Netflix version. Yeah, don't watch the Netflix version. No, the one that's much harder to find and watch. Oh, of course. (laughs) Uh, Wasn't it on YouTube? Didn't you watch it there? I think I watched it all on YouTube. I can't imagine it's still there. Let's let's just check right now. I did discover after we went through all that that my mom has it on DVD. (laughs) 
<laughs> of course. <laughs> so after we pulled it from the schedule at the last minute because we couldn't track it down, watching a Grammarly ad while I confirm this is the whole video. Thank God. Yeah, Rebecca's on YouTube in its entirety. Oh, perfect. Wow. There you go, Mora. There you All go. All right. Good to know. <laughs> All right. Well, every week uh, when we're done providing each other with lists of movies to watch, we break down the romantic plot line of a movie into five points to help us guide the conversation. So, Mora, as our guest, as our medical expert, as our own Dr. McMichael, would you take us to point one of the Crimson Peak romance? I'd love to. So, in point one, Edith meets Mr. Sharp, who has come to town to try to get funding from Edith's dad for some new mining machine of his. And the two of them start chatting and they kind of hit it off. She tries to convince her dad like that maybe she should give him the funding. They go to a ball together and they dance. The waltz, not a complicated dance really. The lady takes her place slightly to the left of the leading gentleman. Six basic steps and that's all. However, it is said that the true test of the perfect waltz is for it to be so swift, so delicate, and so smooth that a candle flame will not be extinguished in the hand of the lead dancer. Now, that requires the perfect partner. Would you be mine? I don't think so. Thank you. But I'm sure Eunice would be delighted. I dare say. They dance so smoothly that the candle does not go out. So smoothly. And it's also like he had kind of is kind of like shunning this other woman who he had apparently been kind of flirting with. Evelyn. Yeah. Evelyn who had like gone to London to meet him. But then he makes a very showy appearance of dancing with Edith at the ball. The prettiest girl in Buffalo. Yeah, shout out to the fact that it starts in <laughs> Buffalo, an unexpected yeah. choice. Right, which is meant to show like how far he has sunk looking for money, right? He couldn't get it in New York. He couldn't get it in Boston. He's had to go to Buffalo. Yeah, because like the list of his past wives, which we'll probably get to, but that starts like Milan, London, and now Buffalo. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, his whole plan is very dubious, right? He starts off being like, my house is the site of beautiful red clay. And in its liquid form, it's very handy. And he pulls out his jar of red goo and you're like, liquid clay? What could I possibly want that for? And he says, I don't know. Don't ask that. You see, the mining of the clay has totally degraded the mountain and it's falling apart. And you start to be like, okay, so what's the deal? And his answer is like, I've built a big steam engine that will mine it differently. <laughs> like, I gotta say, it does not sound like a great investment to me. No, not at all. This movie takes the fall of the House of Usher very literally, where the house is actually just falling. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Usher also literally falls at the end of the story. Does it fall into the ground? It sinks into the swamp. Does it really? I haven't read yeah, that in it's a awesome. long time. It's been a long time for me, too. There's a, a Mike Flanagan has a new adaptation coming out on Netflix this fall, and I'm very excited to see it because I love, I love Usher. The, the fall of the house. I have no opinions really on Usher, the musician. <laughs> Taught by the same language arts middle school teacher as yours truly. No way. Mm-hmm. Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah, Edgar Allan Poe. Isn't he doing um, the halftime show this year at the Super Bowl? I don't know. I, I think you're right. I don't really keep tabs sure on his career still. No, I, I, just, I just heard, uh, which is the latest update I've heard from Usher in a while, so... He hasn't been texting you more regularly. (laughs) No, we've been in a bit of a slump. Also in a slump are the finances of (laughs) the Sharp family. 
So point two. Oh, I do want to, before we move away from Buffalo, I just love everyone being like, what the f*** is a baronet? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're all like, this seems like a made-up noble title. <laughs> and we think all of them are made up. Yeah. Yeah, that was funny. Is this a point where we should invoke our good Dr. McMichael, Charlie Hunnam, who is clearly smitten with Edith? Um, yeah, he is. He's like constantly trying to flirt with her. And Edith's dad has like pointed this out to Edith too. And also notably, speaking of Thomas Sharp, like snuffing the other woman who had, he had been flirting with, Edith had been very like friendly and everything with Dr. McMichael. And then he tried to get her to go to the ball and she said, no, she was going to stay home. But then when Thomas asks her to go to the ball, she decides to go. I do think it's funny. Mark, you brought up earlier that McMichael like tries to save the day and winds up the damsel in distress. I find it very cute that he's like a late 19th century, like Arthur Conan Doyle fanboy. And he's like, I'm going to be just like Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to be a little detective and like try to investigate everything. And he's like mostly bad at it. Like the only reason he gets anywhere is because he talks to the actual private investigator who had already (laughs) done all the work. And then as soon as he goes out to do things on his own, he gets stabbed. Right. And meanwhile, uh, Edith has figured it all out while being poisoned eventually in a wheelchair and in the haunted house. Yeah. To be fair, that also means she had access to a lot more information, though, I feel like, than he did. Yeah, he got there by talking to zero ghosts. Just she one was living professional investigator. <laughs> that is fair. But he also was not being slowly poisoned. Yeah, true. Uh, oh, Dr. McMichaels. I like that he's really into ghost photography. It's just one of those details that pinpoints it in such a specific moment in time. I like how the only reason that she's into Sharp versus McMichaels at the beginning is because one of them reads her book and respects her as an intellectual. (laughs) But anytime someone in a movie is like, read my book, I just always think of Paul Giamatti in Sideways and that moment where he pulls out the second box of the manuscript. Oh my gosh. I get it. But also, if you want her to like you, you should read the book. Or at least skim it. Show some effort. Get someone else to read it, have them summarize it to you. There's got to be some child you can pay to do that. Here, child, have a haypenny and read this book for me with your <laughs> rudimentary literary talents. No, because this is the, the period where, like, children in school had to, like, memorize Shakespeare. Oh, right. We've entered the public education era. Right. Obviously, you should not do this. This is bad relationship advice. Just read the book. Don't pay a child to write you a book report. (laughs) In between school and his shift at the factory. (laughs) A five-paragraph essay on the themes of (laughs) the ghost story. Okay, Maura, point two. Okay, so in point two, Edith's dad has hired a private investigator and finds out about some shady business with Mr. Sharp that we do not find out yet. But he tells... Mr. Sharp that he needs to get out of town. He gives him some money basically and says, take this and get out of here. But before you do that, like break my daughter's heart because he just wants it to be like a clean break. He wants these people gone and he never wants to hear from them again. So Mr. Sharp does this by telling Edith that she's a horrible writer and her book is awful. Because she knows nothing of love. And she is devastated. And then he, the next day, though, he writes Edith a letter explaining that her dad bribed him. She gets the letter and goes looking for him, and he finds him, and he professes his love for her. Lucille was gone. Your father bribed me to leave. I cannot leave you, Edith. 
In fact, I find myself thinking of you even at the most inopportune moments of the day. I feel as if a, a link exists between your heart and mine. And should that link be broken either by distance or by time, that my heart would cease to beat and I would die. And you, you'd soon forget about me. Never. I would never forget you. This is so shady. Like, yes. Yeah. Taking the money and then immediately just like backtracking. I'd be so, I would be so mad if I was Edith Sharp's father. Well, luckily he doesn't have to be mad because his face has been smashed to the smithereens. Well, she doesn't know that before she runs to him. No, she runs to him and then finds out that her dad has been brutally murdered. He's a good dad. He is a good dad. And anyway, then after that, Edith and Mr. Sharp get married. Meanwhile, as we mentioned before, Dr. McMichael is also feeling like something is sketchy with Mr. Sharp, but he doesn't yet quite know what. Honestly, it's kind of nice to have like a good single dad in a Victorian Gothic story. Yeah, he is like at worst a little domineering, but not like horribly so. Right, like, he doesn't say you have to marry Dr. McMichael. He says, this man has a crush on you. Yeah, I feel like he lets her be, like, pretty independent. Also, he lets her write a book, which for, I think, 1896 would be a pretty big deal. She is writing it under a pseudonym, right? I don't think so, but she... Not at first. She does type it, though, so that her womanly handwriting won't give her away. So you assume she's using a pseudonym. Yeah. I guess, maybe. Right, if she's trying not to be identified as a woman, she's not going to send it in. This is by Edith. Yeah. After the, like, after she has her meeting with the first guy, and he turns her, like, you know, wants her to change the book, that's why she then types it and is submitting it with a pseudonym. Or I think she's just submitting it as E, whatever her original last name is, and then mailing it. Cushing, I think. Cushing, yeah. Very uh, George Eliot vibes. So then in point three... Edith moves in to Mr. Sharp's childhood home where he lives with his sister Lucille. I love the moment when Thomas and Edith arrive first and then Lucille comes. She had like been in town for something. And the moment where she first walks in and like sees the two of them there, her interaction with Tom Hiddleston is so awkward in like this funny way where like clearly like the habit is like going in and like kissing and maybe like kissing a lot. And so they do this like super weird like it's really brief but like kind of like what are we doing dance and then have like a weird awkward hug oh i didn't even really notice that like i don't think i picked it up the first time either because like you don't know what's going on unless you know what's going on yeah but so edith is now living there with the sharp siblings and she starts seeing ghosts and getting spooked but also every time that she wakes up in the middle of the night kind of freaked out she realizes that thomas is not in bed with her they also have not consummated the marriage yet right which well, she's in up at one point she tells lucille that they have not yet had sex but then edith is getting like really freaked out by all the ghosts and everything and really says like I need to get out of here and so she and Thomas spend the night away. They don't like, make a plan to spend the night away. He takes her on a, a little jaunt to the post office. To the post office. How thrilling. To the depot because it's also the Going train to the station. the post office is really going to make me feel better when I'm not upset. <laughs> but they get snowed in and they have to stay there 
And so when Lucille finds out that they like spent the night away somewhere, she is visibly like very upset. And that is when you sort of get, especially get vibes that she's jealous and there's like more to their sibling relationship than they initially told. Yeah, they're banging. At this point, I was convinced that they were married. Oh, like they were that he was just not actually brother and sister. Yeah, I thought they were actually married, but just pretending to be siblings so that he could marry somebody to get the money. Like a handmaiden situation, Mark. That feels very much more like what would actually happen if the Brontes wrote this story. Yes, like if this were written in the period. Yeah. What a weirdo. But th- <laughs> this whole section of the house, this whole section of the movie is just like cool vibes more than anything else, which I think is like what some critics didn't like about it. They were like, yeah, it's a cool house, but like what else? And I'm like, it's a cool house. What more do you want? There's like a weird elevator down to a mine that is just like full of vats of liquid clay for some reason. <laughs> it's so like, weird. There's a hole in the ceiling that snow falls through. We watched this with our mom and my mom kept being like, the sto- like, why would you not patch the hole? The snow is coming in. It's going to destroy it. And I'm like, because it's cool. Because it's symbolic. You've got a hole rotting this place. And uh, yeah, it's great. Del Toro talked a lot about how you wanted to make like a set forward horror movie. Like a horror movie where the set was the focus. Like The Shining was the comparison point he kept bringing up. And I feel like he nailed it. Yeah, the house is like the coolest part of the movie. The creepiest part of the movie is the ghost in the bathtub or the baby ghost. With a hatchet in its head? Ghost in the bathtub, speaking of The Shining. Oh, I did think of that too. So, point four. Through various clues, Edith finds out that Mr. Sharp was married previously because she gets mail addressed to E. Sharp and realizes that it's some it's someone Anola Sharp, where she also finds like a chest with those same initials in the basement, and also like when she first arrived at the house, Thomas said to some man who was like helping unpack their bags, like, "Oh yeah, like this is my wife," and the guy's like, "Oh yeah, you've been married for a while," but he and Edith just got married, so there's various clues that lead her to realize that he's been married before. Thomas like barely engages with the groundskeeper who says that he like. Kind of waves him off like, oh, that guy's crazy. But like, Edith never pushes it. No. Oh, there's also the dog. Like one of the ways we find out before Edith is that a dog runs up to the house without a collar and she adopts it. But then Lucille is like, why didn't you kill the dog? Oh, yeah. Because it belonged to a former wife. I love that the dog has like a little red stained butt from like sitting on the ground. Sitting in the clay. Um, so then the big thing, too, is that Edith finds these, like, gramophone recordings that the previous wives have made where they basically say, like, they're being slowly poisoned and the poison is in the tea and Edith has been drinking the tea and also feeling sick. And so at that point, she realizes, like, it's happening to her, too. And so again, at one point, she wakes up in the middle of the night, finds Thomas is gone again. So this time she goes looking for him and she ends up walking in on him and Lucille having sex. Whoopsie. I wouldn't go so far as to say they were having sex at this point so much as making out and just moving clothes around. She is at well, least giving him like a hand job. that way. Yeah. yeah. So she then says to Lucille, like, oh, I, I knew you two. I kind of figured you two weren't actually siblings. And Lucille's like, no, we are siblings. It's all out in the open now. No need to pretend. This is who I am. This is who he is. 
That's when you realize that they're incestuous, yeah. which was just a real surprising point. And then Lucille pushes Edith off of a balcony. Whoopsie! And this is where... In a jealous rage. <laughs> this is where old Dr. McMichael shows up. Dr. McMichael, the movie has like periodically cut back to him. These are often like the worst parts of the movie where it'll cut back to Dr. McMichael being like, what's going on? And you're like, I know. Like, I don't need to see this guy not know. But it is just Charlie Hunnam being a dummy. And he finally makes his way up. And he bursts through the door and sees all this. And he's like, oh my goodness. And basically immediately gets stabbed. Yeah. So this is all kind of part of point five. Yeah. <laughs> where Dr. McMichael uses the same investigator that Edith's dad used, comes to save Edith, tell her everything that is going on, like newspaper articles and everything about Thomas and Lucille. It is funny to imagine like his best version of this, like, Edith has not been, like, stabbed, but, like, maybe she, like, successfully ran out of the house without getting pushed off the balcony and, like, runs into Charlie Hunnam. And he's like, Edith, you have to know, Thomas has been married before. And she's like, that is (laughs) the least of my concerns. Yeah, seriously. I know, because he doesn't, I don't even think he knows that, like, they've been killing their wives, you know? (laughs) He does have the newspaper clipping about the dead mom. Yes, that is true. So he does know a little bit more than just, like, the first marriage. But anyway, so he comes and is trying to save Edith, but then Lucille stabs him. And then in the ensuing fighting that's going on, Mr. Sharp admits that he does actually love Edith and he is trying to save her. Yes, she will live. You're not to touch her. You're ordering me. We can leave Lucille, leave Allerdale Hall. Leave. Think about it, we can start a new life. Where? Anywhere, it doesn't matter. We, we can go? leave it behind. We let the sharp name uh, die with the mines. We let this edifice sink in the ground. All these years holding these walls together, we would be free. Free, Lucille. We can all be together. They had to come. We've been dead for years, Lucille. You promised. You and I in this rotting place. Do you Look love we are. more than me? Look at what we've become. You promised you would not fall in love with anyone else. Yes, but it happened. But then Lucille is feeling betrayed because Thomas promised he would never fall in love with anybody else. So in her rage about him falling in love with somebody else, she stabs him and he dies. And he's like, what do you want? Like, am I expected to be bound by every promise I made when I was 12? Yeah. And that's when she stabs him in the cheek and his eye turns red and it was disgusting. Well, that's cool and good. I mean, he's he's also like pissed off Edith at this point or no. Oh, yeah. But because yeah. he's like he still thinks somehow he will be able to get the three of them to live happily ever after. Which is. This is a movie about neurotic. dumb men. <laughs> yeah. Like obviously edith is annoyed like that is an understatement yes that is an understatement (laughs) she is she's a little peeved at the man who tricked her into marriage carried her across the ocean has allowed her to be steadily poisoned all the while cheating on her with his sister with his sister she's a little miffed 
her sister who's like a known murderer already of the mother. But anyway, then Lucille and Edith are in a big stabbing match. And cool. eventually Edith kills Lucille. Just to beat her to death with a shovel. With a shovel. And Edith and Dr. McMichael survive uh, against all don't odds. Don't forget that the reason she's able to kill her with a shovel is because uh, the ghost of Thomas is just standing behind her. And so she turns to look and then Edith whacks the shovel. Yeah, true. Ghosts are real, says the movie. Says the nurse? Unsure. It's like kind of a bit like girl power pandery. But I love when <laughs> she hits Lucille with the shovel the first time. And then Lucille repeats what she'd said of like, this won't end until I kill you or you kill me. And then she kills Lucille and just goes, I heard you the first time. Yeah, but it's cool. It, but it's cool. It is cool. Like, it's... You know, not perfect. Like, it's not elevated art moment, but I did also just enjoy it. Yeah. It's also ready or not, like, Samara weaving, smoking a cigarette on the steps covered in blood. Of the burning house. Yeah. More ready or not, another good- I should rewatch that. Kind of scary movie. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) I'll do some more Googling. See what that one is in a nutshell. Uh, I would say less graphic than this one. There's the one shot of the person getting crushed in the dumbwaiter. Yeah. Oh. And besides that, less graphic than this. There's no uh, uh, cheekbone stabbing, eye popping. <laughs> less graphic, but is it creepier? I don't know. I don't think so. It is much funnier because it's also a comedy. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. Okay. Watch it with somebody. This one, not funny. Yeah, not really. Well, um, that's Crimson Peak. And so while Mark may say it's not funny, Maura, I'm wondering, do you find the romance of Crimson Peak believable? Um, I do, actually, because I do think it's very believable that some person trying to get financial gain would try and, like, trick somebody into marrying them. Especially a sort of, like, old money without money figure. Somebody who feels entitled to wealth and status, but does not have it it's the it's yeah. the whole penny princess vibe realistic that someone who is like from a smaller town and like hasn't ventured out might be enticed by like the promise of like going somewhere new to live you know and like having those new experiences with someone who is like you know also the first man who ever read and appreciated her book <laughs> her writing as that an too. equal probably that's what sells me on the believability yeah, so the romance itself, I think, is believable. I think the rest of it would be more believable if Lucille and Thomas were just, like, already married and not siblings. That is where it gets to be a little, like, over the top for me. Yeah, which you could still do and still do it in this sense of, like, it was very much a thing in the late 19th century of these nobles running out of cash, lowering themselves to marry rich Americans. Right, Mark? That's part of the premise of Kate and Leopold, mm-hmm. is that Hugh Jackman's character is in town looking for a spouse. Right. Which, while common in media, apparently was not actually a thing that happened that often. Oh, uh, probably. (laughs) It's a nice trope for a modern fairy tale in the 1890s. Yeah. And Downton Abbey. I have never seen it. You know what? I saw the second Downton Abbey movie, and that's the extent of my Downton Abbey. (laughs) It's probably well established enough, but the mom is a rich American who married the Lord is an exchange for money for influence and a title. But then they actually fell in love. Wow. Seeing Downton Abbey, a new era in a packed theater opening weekend was a lot of like, 
the audience laughing and cheering at things where I'm like, I believe that this is meaningful if you know these people at all. (laughs) I watched like two seasons and then it got kind of out of hand for me. I enjoyed it. Look, it seemed very enjoyable. It was. It just meant very little to me. And so I was sitting there being like, if only there were a movie about the transition from the silent era to the sound era, where one performer was nice in the silent era, but doesn't have a very good voice. So somebody else has to dub her lines. But there's never been a movie about yep. that. So <laughs> never a single one. Um, Maura, where would you rate Crimson Peak on a scale of zero to 10, where zero means you believe no romance, 10 means you believe all the romance? Oh, I didn't think about this part. Um, I'm feeling kind of like a seven, maybe. All right. Mark, what do you think? That's a little high. Um, I might go with like a five. I'll split the difference. I'll say six. What the heck? Right. Okay. I feel like you all made a more compelling case for it being believable than I was prepared to hear. Okay, great. I just find the whole um, Thomas and Lucille managing to make it this far still in love and not murdering each other harder to believe. Sure. Yeah, you know, that makes sense. You know, I'll give you that. Okay, you I, talked me down. I'll go to I, I feel like... Yeah, I mean, I feel like Thomas and Edith's romance is, like, pretty believable. The Some of the background stuff going on with Thomas is a little bit harder to get on board with. Uh, Maura, do you think either, we'll say Edith and Thomas, do you think either of them is dateable? You're not going to throw Lucille in the mix? <laughs> you can date Lucille if you want to date Lucille. It, clearly, Thomas is not dateable because he's going to try and kill you. Or even if not, he's going to be, like, way too closely involved in, like people who will try to kill you he will not stop you from being killed that's a definite no (laughs) to be fair he did try to stop her from getting that's after like yeah but how many people were killed before that and a long time of complicity in the murder yes we are anti-murder here (laughs) it's true i know you're pro-crime maura (laughs) i am definitely not you're not soft on crime you're excited for crime oh my gosh thomas is a definite no um i think edith could be I can appreciate, like, her independence, and she is, like, clearly, like, pretty intelligent and, like, well-read. Like, I think she has some good qualities. Um, Her wardrobe is stunning. (laughs) But it's also, it's such a great line of looking great without feeling like she has a ton of money. Like, she walks this great line of, like, clearly being, like, rich in a place that's not super rich. But also her nightgown with puffed sleeves. That was so fancy. I need one. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine that having sleeves that are higher than your head is very comfortable <laughs> while sleeping. But it looks like a soft material. Yeah, it's like a little pillow on each shoulder. Yeah. It defies gravity. Fascinating. Edith and Dr. McMichael are really the only characters left alive. So do we think they will have a romantic future together? I think there's a chance. I certainly think that he thinks that's what's about to happen. Yes. I I, I was kind of going back and forth on if I think that's going to happen or not. I think there's definitely a chance because I think there was some like mild flirtation before Thomas came into town. There was. He's not hard to look at. And I also could see how this experience would like maybe like bond them a little bit. But I'm not totally sure. I feel like she might not want to be with a man for a good long while well that is what i was thinking she had sex once and got poisoned and stabbed yeah i think that's 
the more likely possibility, but I also see maybe even after a while, if she moves back to Buffalo, because of that's where all of her money is, they eventually do establish a relationship after yeah, she's recovered right some. As long as he learns to, like, uh, he takes away the right lesson from this, which is he needs to trust her and let her take the lead because she is better and smarter than him. And then, well, she does get to publish a book, so we know that she's on the up and up. Yeah, it ends like Little Women. She has some uh, March vibes to her. Maura, if you had to pick one person in the movie to date, whom would you choose? I feel like it's got to be Dr. McMichael, right? No one else It really seems like a great option. He sticks up for his friends. You know, when something feels off, he's like willing to go to pretty great lengths to go make sure they're okay. I don't know. Evelyn's a cutie. Is she the mean one? <laughs> yeah, she's the mean one. Oh, yeah. The lawyer's kind of fun. A bit uppity. But good at his job. I think I would date uh, Edith's dad. He's a nice guy. Yeah. I think he is the right choice. There's not a lot of people in this movie. Like, the cast list is very short in the credits. Which is, like, part of the thing, right? It's that once she gets to Crimson Peak... Like, it's so isolating. Right, again, There's very nobody Rebecca. else for miles around. Honestly, the depot worker at the post office seems very nice. Oh, yeah. Concerned for their safety. I also appreciate his need to get the mail delivered, even against the wishes of the person receiving the mail. <laughs> I don't know anyone in Balad. Well, I guess you must, because this is addressed to you. <laughs> you open it up, it's just, like, coupons for a pizza place. Like, they knew what pizza was. Uh, Maura, should Crimson Peak be adapted into a Broadway musical? Um, I think it could be. I think it would have, like, Phantom of the Opera vibes. Yeah, right. You want something with that level of, like, emotional scale. Yeah. You also have to figure out how to make the set bleed liquid clay. That is it's true. A, you do it with projections. It's a, it's projections. a very useful material, though. You use, like, the technology. <laughs> you use, like, theme park projection technology. Like, when they project stuff on the side of the castle in the Magic Kingdom. And so you just do very, yeah. like, targeted projections. I think you gotta get the stage gloopy, though. Also, the whole theater has to sink into the, the mimes. <laughs> I was gonna, at some point, someone needs to get slimed. Like, classically slimed from the ceiling. <laughs> just one unlucky, unlucky audience member. And you know what? It should still be green. Could Nickelodeon put on Crimson Peak the musical oh as a gosh. live musical, like the ones that were being done before the pandemic? I think it could be fun. I think it'd be a lot of fun. There is a Rebecca musical. There's room for songs in this movie. Yeah, I love the idea. Great villain song from Lucille. Oh, yeah. Maura, before we're done, do you have any final thoughts on Crimson Peak or any general advice for the criminals of the United States? Uh, um, No comment on the criminals. And no, I think we kind of covered all my thoughts. All right. Well, I'm glad that you, is it fair to say, enjoyed the movie? Um... Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Still, like, mildly freaked, but um, I think, it, it like I said, me, I think, yeah. Yeah, you could say I enjoyed it. <laughs> Fantastic. I will then. <laughs> Next week, we'll be watching another creepy movie in honor of our spooky month. In honor of our spooky month and my most anticipated movie of the fall, we're watching Scorsese's remake of Cape Fear. I have seen this movie a very long time ago. Oh, really? Which is, I feel like a surprise, but I'm excited to revisit it and not in the form of a Simpsons episode. I'll definitely talk about this next week, but I have spent this year just like 
racing to watch as many Scorsese's as I can before Killers of the Flower Moon comes out. And so I'm excited to make this a part of it. But what about Mooners of the Flower Kill? I I mean, I don't think I have time for porn parodies (laughs) on this quest that I'm doing. All right. Uh, until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love Love Pod, and you can email us questions and movie suggestions at lovelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Maura, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Crimson Peak? Um, I think follow your gut, both in terms of Dr. McMichael not giving up on his friend and had the feeling that something is wrong, and also Edith following her gut to realize that the person she's with is wrong for her. I think I've already made my advice pretty clear, which is uh, if you are interested in someone, take an interest in what is important to them. I feel like my advice is kind of related. To modernize the advice from this movie, if you meet somebody new that you're kind of interested in, give them a little Google. It's okay. At least check public records on their previous relationships and or imprisonments. <laughs> or at least like a LinkedIn, right? Yeah, LinkedIn's good that too. Way, you can look for gaps and be like, what went on there? Was that when you were in prison for murdering your mom? See, but if you're only 12, <laughs> that's where you run into an issue. True. Well, there's child labor at this point, so that might be on their LinkedIn. <laughs> My God, can you imagine a pre-progressive era LinkedIn? Age 7 to age 13, the Cumberland Mines age 14 invalid with (laughs) black lung yeah (laughs) all right on that depressing note until next time i'm gay and i'm a ginger so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance bye Bye. Bye.